0: Father, we do praise you because you do go before us. You stand beside us, behind us. We're gathered this morning in another Resurrection Sunday. After putting all of the careful planning and energy into the Sunday we call Easter to celebrate the Resurrection, here we are a week later celebrating the same event with just as much energy and just as much excitement. Because we here proclaim that your victory over sin, death, and the enemy is so substantial and so significant in all of human history and so substantial and significant for us that we celebrate not just one day a year, but every Sunday as we gather, we proclaim your resurrection. We proclaim your victory. We proclaim the unity that we have in our standing in you. So Father, I pray that you would continue to speak in us and through us. Holy Spirit, our prayer for this morning is that eyes would be open and hearts would be burning with a fire that can only come from you. That we would leave this place um, energized, excited for your kingdom to be your representatives and to just live under your protection and care. Father, as we enter into worship, we come from so many different places. Everyone in this room and and watching online has had a different experience of life this week. And we come from places of sickness, from places of fatigue, from places of emotional discouragement, of, of intellectual questions, of spiritual dismay. And, oh, Father, we pray that you would minister to broken hearts where they are this morning. You know what every searching mind and what every hurting heart needs to hear and needs to experience today. And so, Father, I pray that by Your Spirit You would bring clarity to Your Word, clarity to the words that we sing and the words that we pray, and clarity to the Word that is revealed to us. Father, we praise you. We praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your righteousness. We praise you for your holiness. Because you are not like us. You are so far beyond who we are and the capacities we have. And yet you have loved us. And in your love, you have made us righteous before you. You have taken the penalty away by paying for it and pouring it out on Jesus. And Jesus, when you conquered the grave, you conquered that enemy for us as well. So we gather here in your name, as Christians, as little Christs, celebrating the resurrection, celebrating the Spirit that indwells us, celebrating the Word that is revealed to us, and the unity of this Spirit that binds us together today. And God, as we pray, we too remember um, our brothers and sisters around the world. And um, Father, in your divine wisdom and sovereignty, um, you brought to us a, a possibility two years ago of doing an outreach event in Romania that has taken place now even this week. And um, as Tom, one of our members, is there in Romania, ministering alongside the churches that we have partnered with. Father, I pray that, you pray that you would bless that ministry. And Father, I pray for the people that they have already met with and, and talked to and Tom's specific request of a, of a Ukrainian refugee mother that has moved into Cluj over the last month and asked for Tom to pray for his, for her son, who's in the army, in battle right now. And Father, we do. We pray for safety. We pray for an end to the war. We pray for peace. And God, we pray that, that you would use the church, that you would use the church to bring clarity of the gospel and to bring peace. And that, Father, we just recognize that you and your wisdom ordained that we not do this outreach through these churches in Romania two years ago. But you desired for us to do it right now when there would be an incredible influx of Ukrainians in despair moving right into that same city of Cluj, Romania. So, Father, we ask that your will be done. We ask that you would enliven hearts and bring Bring weary souls to life by renewing hearts and minds with your gospel. We thank you for the opportunity to stand with brothers and sisters all around the globe in prayer and partner in ministry. Because, Father, what we are all seeking is for your kingdom to come and your will be done. For your name and for your kingdom to spread among every nation, tongue, and tribe. So God, as we gather here today, we know there are many others gathering all over the world. And we ask that you would speak and work in them as you speak and work in us. In the name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here um, this morning. As I mentioned in in the prayer, um, Tom, one of our elders and the head of our missions committee, is in um, Romania right now as Saturate Romania is going on. Um, It's amazing the way this has unfolded over the last really two and a half years. Uh, In late 2019, we had the opportunity to do this outreach project called Saturate um, in Dalton and Whitfield County. And we partnered with 30-some other churches to make sure that every household in Whitfield County had the opportunity to receive a gospel presentation through the Jesus film and through evangelistic materials that came along with it. And it was a great initiative, uh, unifying among the number of churches that did it. We had a great time as our local church being a part of just walking down on the streets and hanging these bags on doors and things like that. It was a great, great moment for our church. And then our Romanian church pastors found out about it, and they said, hey, we want to do that in Romania. Um, How do we do that? And we said, well, we will raise up some funds. This was February of 2020. We will raise up some funds and collect an offering to make sure you have the opportunity to have the materials to share the gospel through written materials and through the Jesus film in Romania with um, households in Cluj-Napoca, Romania. And uh, so we did that. We took up an offering in, in 2020, and then that money just kind of sat there because they weren't ready because of the COVID restrictions and everything that happened. They weren't ready, and then they targeted Easter 2022. About four or five months ago, they came to us and they said, this is when we want to do it. And um, this week, the, the Easter calendar is a little bit different in Romania, being um, uh, influenced by the Eastern Orthodox Church, and so um, so this is Easter Sunday for them in Romania, and the culmination of the outreach was today. And uh, so Tom has been there for a few days to just participate with them in the last few days. And it's amazing that thousands, and I mean thousands of people, have flooded into Cluj-Napoca, Romania, because as we've told you before, it's less than 100 miles from the Ukrainian border. And um, and with all of the different questions of what what God was doing um, through this crazy period of time over the last two years, from the onset of the COVID pandemic and all of the, the different things that have happened since then, uh, we can now look and we can see um, an evangelistic outreach happening, Inclusion of Polka, that's involving a few thousand more Ukrainians being um, introduced to the gospel than would have happened had it happened on schedule two years ago. So it's an incredible thing to watch and an incredible thing to see. I, pr- I ask that you would continue to pray for those efforts that have been two and a half years in the making and pray for uh, Rhaenostria Church, um, and Geneza Church, Renastria led by Donnie Gruyan, and uh, Geneza led by Emmy Cura. Um, I ask that you would just pray for those churches and for um, there's a bunch of other churches that I don't know that they're partnering with in this too. Um, it's an incredible thing to see. Okay, next week, a few things going on in the life of the church. Next week is going to be our graduate Sunday where we will honor our um, high school graduates in service. I will be in the second service. Um, and so we'd love for you to plan to stick around a little bit later next Sunday. There will be some light refreshments out in the gym, and the seniors will have tables set up with pictures, and they'll have guest books. And you can have you can drop a basket or drop a card in the basket to just um, congratulate them on the work that they have completed there. So that is immediately after the 10:30 service next Sunday. They'll be presented in the service, and then we'll have a a light reception for them. So just plan to stay um, after the service for a few minutes if you are at all able. Um, And then also next Sunday, we'll start a Bible drive. Um, You know that we have a partnership with um, a Richard Steele and the Whitfield County Jail, and there's been limitations over the last two years on how much ministry has been able to happen in the jail, but that, that's back to happening, and, and they're able to go in person um, into um, into the jail again, both on the men's side and the women's side. So we have a number of women in our church that are doing that regularly as well, and they've asked for Bibles because um, they the demand, the demand the request for Bibles has has gone up, and so we would ask that you would just bring... Um, old Bibles um, to us, and um, you know if they're they're used gently used. I know every one of us has um, multiple Bibles sitting at home that we're not reading regularly. So we're going to have a big bin out in the gymnasium um, starting next week, and for four Sundays in May, we will be um, collecting those. Um, so please make note of that and uh, just bring a few extra Bibles with you to church the next couple of Sundays. Um, That's the first four Sundays in May, and then there's a fifth Sunday in May. And on that Sunday, we will again not be here on site, Um, and so we just like to change it up, keep you guys on the toes, on your toes. Um, Memorial Day weekend, we will again do what's been a long-standing tradition for our church. We'll have a Memorial Day picnic at People's Farm in Ringgold. And um, the way that will work is we will have uh, one service that day outside in a pavilion. And uh, bring your own um, bag chair. There'll be some seating there. We'll have a service outside, um, and then we'll have lunch together. And the church will provide um, fried chicken, and then you guys will provide side items and desserts. And church will provide drinks, and we'll just all hang out together um, that day. So we'll have a service, and we'll have a lunch. We'll have—I mean, there's a there's a volleyball court, there's a playground, there's a big field to play in. There's lots of things that we can do out there. It'll just be a good fellowship event for our family um, as a church family to spend time together. So make note of that. That is the last Sunday in May, the day before Memorial Day. Uh, Please plan to join us for that. Now, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 24, and we're going to finish strong in the book of Luke this morning. Um, It was uh, talk about things that have been a while in their development. Um, It was the end of 2020. When we started to walk through Luke, uh, in that Christmas season, we went through Luke 1 and 2. And then throughout 2021, and then the last four months of 2022, we have been in Luke. And we've had some breaks along the way where we've uh, had some studies of other uh, books and sections. Um, But here we are, 51 sermons, I counted. Um, This is sermon number 51 in the Gospel of Luke. And it is Luke chapter 24. And Luke chapter 24 leaves us with a picture of how Jesus reveals himself in our time of need. In our time of emotional need, spiritual need, and intellectual need. He answers all of the questions here in Luke chapter 24. Uh, Last week we were together at um, Walnut Hill and I said, I'm not going to give you the full narrative of the resurrection because as we, as we closed the passage last week, we knew that Jesus was no longer in the tomb, but He hadn't actually appeared in the narrative from the Gospel of Luke. And I said that I wanted us to stay and wait for this Sunday to unpack that because this is one of my favorites. This is probably my favorite section of the Gospels and maybe in Scripture itself because this is the interpretive key that unlocks so much of what the Scriptures say. Luke 24 is one of the most important passages in all of the Scriptures. Because Jesus shows up, obviously, that's pretty vital. That's the crescendo of human history when Jesus rises from the grave and is alive and appearing to His followers. But the priority that Jesus shows post-resurrection is what is so fascinating, encouraging, and instructing to me. Because he has a focus, and his focus is on appearing to his disciples and revealing himself. So where are we going to see today? We're going to see Jesus reveal himself. First, we're going to see Jesus reveal himself in the Old Testament Scriptures. And then we're going to see Jesus reveal himself in person. And then we're going to again see Jesus reveal himself in person and again reveal himself in the Old Testament Scriptures because there's two groups of people here. He has two audiences here in Luke chapter 24. First, it's just two people that are his followers that are walking along the road. And first he reveals himself in the Scriptures, then he reveals himself in person. And then he shows up with the disciples in the upper room, reveals himself in person, and then reveals himself in the Scriptures. And then he removes himself. And, and in this passage, a few weeks pass between... Luke 24, 13, and Luke 24, 50. But the few weeks that pass, it's amazing to see the sadness that Jesus' followers are experiencing with Jesus gone at the beginning of Luke 24, and the joy when Jesus is gone at the end of Luke chapter 24. And so much happens within the followers of Jesus in those days that it's, it's, it will be easy for us to see and understand What happened along the way. So we'll start in verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. So let me just be clear. This is Easter Sunday. That very day is Easter Sunday. The day that they found the tomb empty. And if you remember the passage from last week, there were some women that had found the tomb empty, and then Peter and John both ran. They found the tomb empty. And then um, after that, there were a couple of people that were a part of the group of Jesus' followers that decided, we're going to return home. Emmaus is a town that's seven miles away from Jerusalem. And so they were going to walk that seven miles. That's probably a three-, four-hour journey, something like that, as they're walking across this uh, this, um, ancient road that is um, going, extending down from Jerusalem, high elevation, down to Emmaus. So they're walking downhill for seven miles, going to Emmaus to return home after the Passover celebration, because this is what happened. When Jesus was there in Jerusalem, the Passover feast was, was taking place. So that means there were thousands of extra people in Jerusalem that weekend because of the feast. And now was the time, it was Sunday, it was time for everybody to start traveling home little by little. Some would stay for weeks, some would start traveling home on Sunday, the day after the Passover. So this is that first group. These are two people that are traveling home to Emmaus um, on Easter Sunday, the day of the resurrection. They were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing them. So Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up, but without revealing himself. And and these are not two people that had no idea who Jesus was. These were two of his followers. When it says there in verse 13, two of them, it means two of Jesus' close followers that knew him well. They should have been able to recognize him, but they were kept spiritually from recognizing him in the moment because Jesus had something that he needed to tell them first. First. But Jesus starts walking with them. They couldn't recognize him. Verse 17, he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. So they're, they're walking, right? They stood still, and they looked sad. Because this guy, this visitor to Jerusalem, he was walking from Jerusalem. So he had been in Jerusalem all weekend, is what they thought. And they just stopped on the road. It's a dramatic moment where they're recognizing in sorrow and in sadness how does this guy not know what's been going on? One of them named Cleopas verse 18 answered him, "Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days?" I said, "Man, how do you not get it? How do you not know what we're talking about? Have you been in Jerusalem and just had your head in the sand and not heard any of this about this guy?" So he says, verse 19, "What things And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, meaning we had hoped he was the Messiah. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels. And the angels said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. We know that that was Peter and John. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And right there, one of the coolest verses in all of scriptures, one of those interpretive keys that unlocks our understanding of all of the 66 books that we can hold in our hand with this collection we call the Bible. 66 books from different authors written over the course of thousands of years, and Jesus says that I can interpret all of these things back to myself. He starts with Moses, which means he starts in the beginning, the first five books of the law, the books of Moses. And he goes through all the prophets at the end of the Old Covenant Scriptures. So from beginning to end of the Old Testament, he interprets to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. himself. And let me just tell you, I have one disappointment with this passage, that Luke never recorded that for us. Because think about it. Think about all the revelation we have of Jesus' teaching, all of the beauty of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and and all that Jesus shares there. These gospel writers are so meticulous and careful in their research to find for us a a written version of Jesus' various addresses. Uh, Think about John 15, the, the upper room discourse in John 15 and following. Think about all of the teachings we have from Jesus and we don't have that Emmaus discourse. And man, I want that. I want to read it. I want to see it because this passage has always fascinated me to see where did Jesus go? What did Jesus say? And so we're, we're going to unpack that a little bit later on. But for now, let's look at who these two people are. Uh, we know one is Cleopas. We don't know who the other one is. Could be Cleopas's wife, could be a son, could be a friend. Uh, we, we don't know. Uh, we know that they were in Jerusalem. We know that they're returning to Emmaus, that they live in Emmaus, apparently. But we know that they had various problems. They had an emotional problem. They were sad. They were grieving the loss of a friend. But more than that, they were grieving the loss of the hopes and dreams that they had placed in that friend because they thought he was the Messiah, the one to redeem Israel. And now they're recognizing, boy, this, we were wrong about something here. But they also had an intellectual problem. They didn't understand why. If this man, Jesus, was the Messiah, why he would suffer and die the way he did? So they didn't understand the books that they had read and studied throughout their entire life. had an intellectual problem. They also, though, primarily had a spiritual problem. Because there is no good explanation in human terms why these two people did not recognize Jesus. That had, there had to be something spiritual going on there. Jesus supernaturally veiled himself and his identity from these two people. I don't know how he did it. I don't know the details of it. I don't know what Jesus looked like in life. I don't know what Jesus looked like that day. But I know that they did not recognize him. And they couldn't figure out who he was. And they couldn't figure out why this man was, had no idea about Jesus of, of Nazareth. And yet, he revealed to them over the course of maybe three hours along this walk... This sermon of on this downhill sermon from Jerusalem to Emmaus, revealing all of the Old Testament scriptures that are pointing to Jesus. And we see Jesus is revealing himself even when people don't recognize how he's revealing himself. But then, verse 28 they drew near to the village to which they were going, he acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And he was at table with them. He took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. He vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened? to us the scriptures. So here's our goal for today. It's really, really simple. We want to walk out, walk out of this place with open eyes and burning hearts, exactly where Jesus left these two followers of him in Emmaus, sitting at their home, recognizing that their hearts had been burning throughout the day as they were hearing and understanding the scriptures. Why? Because it was the Spirit of God it was revealing to them the truth of the Scriptures. And they heard things in a way that they had never heard them before. And, and it's amazing. When you think about what Cleopas says, Cleopas says... How do you not know random stranger on the road to Emmaus about this guy that we thought was the Messiah and he's been dead for three days and now there's some people that are saying he's alive. This is really confusing, right? And it's like, wait a second, Cleopas. This guy told you and his other followers multiple times that he would die and on the third day he would rise again. And, and, it, and you can be really confident from this, the seat that we have here 2,000 years later looking back and like, how did they not get this? He said it multiple times, three days, dead, three days, I'll rise on the third day. And Cleopas literally is like, can you believe that he's been dead for three days and it's the third day and people are saying he rose again? Yes, Cleopas, we can believe this because that's exactly what he predicted. But but their their minds were shielded from understanding the fullness of the truth until the Spirit of God came and enlivened it. Them and enlivened the truth, brightened up the truth in them. It's like in their minds. Think about a lifetime of living in a Jewish home, of reading and studying the Old Covenant, of memorizing much of the Old Covenant, probably the Torah. Most of these people had memorized it as young children. And now they have all this information in their heads and they think they understand the information in their heads. But there's this interpretive key that is missing. And it's like there's this this giant log jam of information in their heads. And it's like all of a sudden, Jesus steps in and He clarifies one little point and boom! It all comes together. This is what is happening to these followers on this day. The, the, The jam is just being removed and all of a sudden it's like, oh, it does make sense. It does all flow together to see Jesus as the interpretive key to all of the scriptures. And maybe, just maybe, when, when the book of Genesis was predicting what was happening when there would be a, a descendant of Eve that would come and crush the head of the serpent, maybe that was Jesus. Maybe when Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness and the people looked to the serpent for healing, maybe that was emblematic of the Son of Man being lifted up and placed on a tree for the sins of all people. And and maybe, just maybe, when God made a promise to the people, to to Noah, and made a covenant with Noah, that said, never will I destroy the, the people of the earth again like this. How did God in His justice make that promise? Because God was just to remove the people from the earth in Genesis 6. And yet God is saying... I'm never going to do it again. How is he going to justly fulfill his promise? By somebody else taking the penalty. By somebody else suffering so that humanity would not have to. And as you start to see that, the, the veils, the, the, the scales start to fall off and the veil becomes much clearer. And all of a sudden, all these stories that were always pointing to Jesus make way more sense in the light of Jesus' interpretation he gives here. But we have so many observations that we can make here. Number one, Jesus thinks the Bible is about him. Number two, if the Bible is about Jesus, it ain't about you. And so often we read these stories of the Bible as if they're about us. And that, that, that we're David, and we're Solomon, and and we're we're Daniel, and all of these things, and, and we are the heroes of our own story, and we try to put ourselves into these biblical narratives, when all the while Jesus is saying, he is the hero of every story of the scriptures. And that's what he's interpreting to Cleopas and the other on the way here. He's the hero of every biblical story, and he achieves victory on our behalf. We are not we are only made victors through His victory. We become more than conquerors through Him, but the only way we become more than conquerors is by first receiving the victory that He has achieved for us. So yeah, the Bible is about Him. It's, it's not about you. But also, we see that, that understanding and interpreting the Bible is more than an intellectual exercise guys, that's something that we, we have to recognize and gather anytime, recognize anytime we gather here today. Anytime we do this, we recognize that what we're doing right now is a spiritual activity, not an intellectual activity. And so my goal is not to be the smartest person in the room or the most informed person in the room and convince you all to agree with me on what I believe Scripture says. My goal is to present the sense of the Scripture. That's what Ezra did to just tell you what the Scriptures say and allow the Spirit of God to work through me, through you, and through the preaching of the Word so that the Word of God would make your hearts burn, would allow your your eyes to be opened to the beautiful truths that we have here. And so just like the Bible's not about Jesus, what we're doing here today isn't about me. It's all about Jesus. Because Jesus is the one revealing the truth through his spirit to hearts and minds here. And all of you then have a role in that too. You're not just passive observers, passive uh, recipients of the truth. You are actively trying to pursue Jesus through the scriptures yourself. And so you're you're trying to open your own eyes, open your own hearts and your own minds to receive the truth. And if there's anything in the way, any distraction, any idols, any any sinful patterns that are in your life that are getting in the way of you understanding the Scriptures, that's something that you can be a part of working with Jesus to push out so your minds can be open to this beautiful truth here. So Jesus reveals Himself in the Scriptures, and He reveals Himself in person, and the result is open eyes and burning hearts. But then we see the disciples. Verse 33. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were gathered together. Now, let, let's stop right here. Jesus was kind of messing with these guys. And, and I love the way Jesus does this, because Jesus knew what he was going to accomplish that day. But he needed them, he wanted them, to ask him to stay. And so when they get to Emmaus, Jesus acts like he's going to go farther. Now, they convince him to stay. Why do they convince him to stay? Because it's dark outside, or it's almost dark outside. And it's dangerous to journey at night. So they say, no, no, no. You stranger that we just met today, don't go any farther. Spend the night here with us. And I love that because Jesus was always intending to do that. and always in, Well, he didn't spend the night with them. He disappeared as soon as they recognized him. But he was intending to stay because he needed to reveal himself to them so that they would get the more, more sense out of what he was saying. But Jesus wanted them. Wanted them to be the ones to say, no, Jesus... Welcome, welcome into our home, come into our home. So, so here's the thing that we have to recognize in our own salvation, in our own lives, both are true, that Jesus is pursuing us, that the Holy Spirit is renewing us, that God is doing all of the heavy lifting, but we also have to respond to it. And the gospel is a message that is proclaimed that needs a response. So as the Spirit is going out and as the Spirit is moving in us and as Jesus is moving to save people. People need to respond and invite him to come and be their savior. This is a, just a p- small picture of what Jesus is doing in the work of salvation with hearts and minds. But notice the, the difference between um, their concern that they have in verse 29 for Jesus traveling after dark and then what happens in verse 33. They get up, I mean, this dark time, they had walked seven miles, late morning, early afternoon, and all of a sudden, in the dark, once they know that it's Jesus, they're like, We got to run up that hill back to Jerusalem, downhill in the daylight, Jerusalem to Emmaus, and then run up the hill to get back those seven miles to Jerusalem to get to the disciples. That is how extreme this news was to them. And they had to be thinking, oh, my goodness, we didn't believe those women. Oh, my goodness. We couldn't believe what, what Jesus, we couldn't understand what Jesus was saying when he was talking about dying and resurrecting. And now we get it and we've got to share it with the, the other believers. We got to share it with the disciples. And so there's this really funny picture that shows up as these two guys are running up to the upper room to get up there and they cannot wait to tell the disciples the good news. And meanwhile, the disciples are celebrating themselves because they've got good news too. And they can't wait till these two guys get back. And here, here's what happened here. They rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. And the eleven and those who were with them looked at him and said, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And the guys were like, oh, that was our news. Man, we were running up here to tell you all that. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so at some point, between when these two people left Jerusalem to go to Emmaus, there had been another appearance, and Jesus had appeared to Simon. And now the, people, the disciples actually really and fully believed. And so as these two were rushing up to the upper room to tell them, they already believed it, and they got to celebrate together. Verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit and he said to them why are you troubled why are you, why do doubts arise in your hearts see my hands and my feet see that it is i myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that i have and when he said this he showed them his hands and his feet and while they still disbelieved for joy the good kind of disbelief disbelief for joy because it felt like all of a sudden it was too good to be true. But let's look at how Jesus reveals himself in these two episodes. One is dinner at the house in Emmaus. They see him and they understand who he is through the breaking of bread. Now, not knowing exactly who these two followers were, other than one's name is Cleopas, we, we don't know exactly what they had seen. Had they been there on the hillside, when Jesus had taken loaves and fishes and divided it up miraculously and fed 4,000 on one day and 5,000 on another day? Had they been there and in that act they saw, oh, Jesus is breaking bread again? Or had they actually been there in in the upper room for the Last Supper? Or had they heard from the disciples what Jesus had done in the Last Supper when He took the bread of the Passover? the unleavened bread of the Passover that was a celebration of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt and said, guys, this isn't just about Egypt. This is about me. This is my body. And he broke the bread and he said, this is my body. A a crazy, a crazy thing to say. When you think about it, outside, we know what we know about the truth of who Jesus is. But think about it in the moment. And these guys had celebrated the Passover supper every Passover for their entire life. They had been through this Seder meal 20, 25 times in their life. They knew how it went. They knew what you were supposed to say. They knew what the leader was supposed to say. And the leader was not supposed to say, this is my body. It was an incredible thing for him to say in the moment. And then, surely, Cleopas and this other follower of Jesus had heard it. And they knew about this incredible claim that Jesus had made at the Passover. And somehow, in the breaking of bread, they recognized him. But then see how they recognize him in the upper room. He says, look at my hands, look at my feet. Why? Because of the scars. And I, and I think that probably that was what was going on in the, road, in the home in Emmaus, too. As he's walking down the road... They don't recognize who he is, but then they sit down at the table and he goes and he picks up bread to break it and all of a sudden they see, they see the nail pierced hands. They see the scars. Just as Jesus would later that day show the scars to the disciples, see my hands and my feet, he would later say to Thomas, do you want to actually put your hand in, into my hand and feel the scars? It's important to note here that they recognize Jesus by his scars. And so our calling is to recognize Jesus in the scriptures, sure. Recognize Jesus in the resurrection, sure. Recognize Jesus in his scars that were inflicted on him for our sake. Jesus reveals himself in all of those ways, and it's important that we recognize him in all of those ways. That those scars were for us for the forgiveness of sins. We see and we recognize Jesus through his suffering. And then Jesus eats fish. To prove that he's not a ghost. What's the point of the fish there? To prove that he's not a spirit, that he's a real human being. He took it and he ate fish. Verse 44, then he says, he goes back to the scriptures, okay? Verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Okay, so let's talk about the Old Testament now. One of the things that I read this week is um, the American Bible Bible Society. Why was that so? The American Bible Society. The American Bible Society. It's an organization that does a survey um, every year that's called the State of the Bible in the United States. And the survey for 2021 has just been released that was a great number of people throughout the year 2021 were surveyed on their Bible reading habits, how often they read those sort of things. And this was, amazingly, one of the years that those numbers changed more dramatically than they have in a number of years. And here's what happened, okay? In 2020, in the 2020 survey, 50% of Americans read the Bible four times a year or more. Now, let's be real. Four times a year, that's not the goal here, guys. We want you to read Scripture more than four times a year. But it is significant to say that 50% of Americans had at least somewhat of an appreciation for Scripture in the year 2020 that they read it at least four times in a year. And that's not sitting in a service, that's going themselves, opening up a Bible by themselves with just the Bible and reading it. Four times a year, 50% of Americans in 2020. That number dropped to 39% of Americans in 2021. You think, well, what was it? I wonder, in 2019 or 2018 or 2017, that number was basically 50% for 10 years in a row, from 2011 to 2020. That number barely changed. It was basically 50% every time they did the survey from 11 until 20, and then 2021, an 11% drop down to 39%. Some something's changing. Something is changing in the way Americans view Scripture and the way they view God and the significance they see in the scriptures in their lives. But again, that four times a year isn't the goal. Um, there's another category of people that respond to this survey that read the Bible daily. And in 2021, or in 2020, 14 percent of Americans read the Bible daily. And in 2021, 10 percent. Four percent drop in that number from reading it daily in 2020 to reading it daily in 2021. And you think, well, 4%, that, that's not very many. Well, that's 13 million Americans. That's 13 million Americans that read the Bible daily in 2020 that didn't in 2021. And, and those numbers have been, have been kind of more significantly dropping over the years as opposed to that 50% number for the four times a year. And you can look at the survey and you can see all of the, they're all downward trends. And they're all downward trends that have been happening for years that was so much more significant over the last year from 2020 to 2021 than in previous years that they'd done the survey. And so, guys, this is where we, where we look up and we recognize um, that the times are serious for us. And this is where we recognize, like, this is a gift to us. And, and we have the opportunity to then be against the cultural trend and say when the culture moves away from the Bible, we move towards the Bible. And you know I told you that my only disappointment with Luke 24 is that I don't have more there. Like I want that 3-hour sermon from Jerusalem to Emmaus. But but guys what I want you to see here is we have access to all of that material. And actually the beauty of the scriptures is that we can read it for ourselves and we can now that we know I said there was a log jam for these guys, for all these disciples, for Cleopas and his followers. They had, they had all of this stuff in their brains and they didn't know what it meant until Jesus showed up and reinterpreted it according to himself. And guys, we're trying to, we're trying to shortcut the, the, the process here. We're trying to get to everything through Jesus without putting in the work of all the information they had stored up in their heads from growing up in a Jewish household. There is so much to be learned here. So much growth that can happen through engaging in the Word daily. I think I've said this before, but um, Jess and I, about five years ago, we made a change in our lives because we saw, we saw that we needed to. We saw that with young children in the home, sometimes you're just surviving. And, and it, thriving is not, not even an option. You're just kind of surviving. And you're wrestling kids to get them down to bed and you're, you're exhausted at the end of the day because you're going different directions all day and then you get the kids in bed and you're just tired at the end of the day and you don't give your best to each other in your marriage and your relationship. And surely, if you're waiting to give any time to God until after the kids are in bed, that, at that point, you don't have any energy left. And we say, well, this is important to us. If the Scriptures are vital for life and godliness, then... We need to reorient our lives and, and in a sense, reschedule our lives around them to where Scripture isn't just this thing that gets thrown in, but Scripture is this thing through which we then orient the rest of our lives to make sure that we have time for the Scriptures. So we flipped our schedules, and we said, no, 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 we're we're not going to stay up for a couple hours after we wrestle the kids and get them in bed. We're going to go to bed pretty close to when we get the kids down, and then we're going to get up early, so that we can make sure that we give those first hours of the morning to God, to Scripture, and also to each other. And so, so now, about five years ago, we flipped our schedules to where we said that we're going to get up early. And I mean like between 5 and 6, sometimes 4.30, we got up real early to give the time to the Scriptures their first thing in the morning so that we have our scripture reading done for the day before the kids are up and moving and we're racing to get them out the door to go to school. And that doesn't have to be the way you do it, but I'm saying if you want to know what that sermon was in Luke 24 that Jesus was revealing, you can learn that stuff yourself. It's all right there. There's 39 books of the Old Covenant that are there right there for the reading. And you now know how to interpret them. You now know that Jesus is there and that Jesus is the primary message. He's the application tool and he's the primary message of all of the Old Testament scriptures. And so you can now open up the scriptures and read them in light of him. That opportunity is available to us. And so let's not be like the the cultural trend and, and move away from the Scripture, but let's be like the people in Emmaus that has their eyes opened and their hearts burning. But the disciples had the same problem. So back to, back to 44 and 45. For the disciples, he had to say to them, this is what the law and the prophets and the Psalms, this is how they must be fulfilled in me. And then in verse 45, he didn't teach them better than he had taught them before. In verse 40, 45, it doesn't say Jesus preached his best sermon he'd ever preached to the disciples. That's what we said. It said Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So recognize, there is discipline in learning and understanding the Scriptures. If you're going to understand it, you've got to read it. But also, there's a spiritual exercise in this, in which you're asking the Holy Spirit of God to illumine the Scriptures to you so that you can understand what they say and understand how to live in, light of, in response to them. Because Christians, brothers and sisters, we are not under the Old Covenant. And yet I'm begging you to read the books of the Old Covenant. Because while we are not under the law, because the law was a tutor that would lead us to Christ, and then the law is fulfilled in Christ, and then the the sacrifices of the Old Covenant are made obsolete in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. We we have to understand all those things, but then see the beautiful pictures of Christ's fulfillment and the beautiful recipe for what obedience looks like through the Old Covenant. It's there, it's beautiful, and it is there for us to embrace and live out if we take the time to do the work to just kind of dive in. And that's what we want to do as a church. I mean, I just told you, we spent 51 weeks going through the life of Christ in the book of Luke. Next week, we're starting in the Old Testament book of Lamentations because the Old Covenant scriptures speak of Jesus too. And we're going to see what, this, what the book of Lamentations tells to us about Jesus because, guys, it's a beautiful story. The book of Lamentations is a, is a list of complaints. It's poetic complaints. God, why are you doing it this way? But when you see them through the hope of Jesus, you see God cares about the griever. God cares about the herder. And when you have questions that you don't know the answers to, don't be afraid to ask God because he wants to hear and he wants to respond. He wants to show you and reveal Jesus to you. So what do we see in the Old Covenant? What, they, what might they have been hearing? Maybe they heard something like what Jesus said in Luke 5 when he looked at the Pharisees and he said, you search the Scriptures because you think in them they, you find life, but they testify about me and you've missed me in the Scriptures. Maybe he explained something like what King Agrippa heard from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26 when Paul looks at King Agrippa and says, I'm not saying to you anything except... What the prophets have already said. Moses already said it. The prophets and Moses already said that Christ would suffer, be the first to rise from the dead, and will proclaim light to his people and to the Gentiles. By the time Acts 26 comes around, um, and Paul is on trial before King Agrippa, he knows exactly what all of the Old Covenant says and how to interpret it in Christ. In Isaiah 53, the first convert from Africa is, uh, happens in Acts 8. Acts 8. When there's a guy that's an Ethiopian eunuch that is reading the, the passage Isaiah 53 down a chariot and all of a sudden Philip shows up and he preaches the gospel from the old covenant and Isaiah 53 says here's what you need to know to receive the good news of Jesus because and we can do this from Old and New Testament because 1 Corinthians 1.20 all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, in Him. And guys I still wonder Still wonder what was it like? Did he go to Genesis? I mean, he could have spoken for three hours on just Genesis. He could look at Genesis one and said, "Well, what what Paul will write to the Corinthians, I'll go ahead and let you know. Everything that was created was created by Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus. Genesis one, Jesus was there. Maybe Jesus on the road to Emmaus was telling these guys, uh, Genesis three, there would be a descendant of the woman that will come and will crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus." That's the Messiah. Maybe he came and he said, actually, Genesis 22, Jesus is there too. The horn of salvation, the ram in the thicket is the horn of salvation, is the Messiah who is caught and is being pierced by thorns and becomes a substitutionary sacrifice on Mount Moriah, the site of the temple where Isaac does not have to die, but Abraham then takes the life of a ram in Isaac's place. There's so much imagery there. It is clearly Jesus being represented by a ram in the thicket. Is that what he explained? That maybe, maybe he went, I, he couldn't have gone through every, every passage. But maybe he went through and he said, okay, how about Exodus, guys? You know how in Exodus the Israelites were told to, to, to put blood on their mantles? Because the Passover lamb, they needed to be identified with the blood of the Passover lamb. Well, it's better to be identified with the blood of Jesus than the Passover lamb. Because the Passover lamb was pointing to Jesus all along. Maybe he told them that in Exodus, Jesus is the high priest and the perfect sacrifice so that all of the sacrificial system of of Leviticus could be fulfilled i said Exodus in Leviticus he's the high priest all of that could be fulfilled in Jesus In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud by day that the people follow and the pillar of cloud by night that the people follow. He's also the rock through which living water flows to give life to the people. In Deuteronomy, he's better than Moses. He's the ultimate lawgiver that brings the interpretation of the law as he reveals the law. He's also the true and better prophet. In Joshua, you see the captain of the Lord's army show up and interacting with, with Joshua. And Jesus is the true and better captain of the Lord's army. He is the captain of our salvation who achieves victory and every victory we need on our behalf. In Judges, he's the judge that will never let the people down because all the judges and judges did. But he's the true and better judge and he's the Lawgiver. He's the one that you can always follow and always trust. In Ruth, he's the true and better redeemer. In Samuel, he's the true and better prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, the true and better king. In Ezra, he's the teacher of the law who brings the sense of the law to the people. In Nehemiah, he's the one that brings the nation together and unifies a nation in order to do this building project, the building of his kingdom and his temple for his glory. In Esther, he's the protector of his people against all evil. In Job, he's the one who suffers on our behalf and the one who is tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin, so that we can look to him as one who can sympathize with us in our weakness. In Psalms, he's the good shepherd. He's the word of God himself that we pursue. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's the purpose that we find beyond the sun. In the Song of Solomon, the lover of our soul. Isaiah, the promised prince of peace. Jeremiah, the righteous branch from Branchville. Nazareth, the city of Jesus was called Branchville. That's literally what the Hebrew name means. And he is the righteous branch that is coming to restore um, Israel. He is in Lamentations, which we're studying next week. He is the weeping prophet who weeps for for those things that cause us pain. In Ezekiel, he's the one who calls out to the dry bones and he makes them to walk again. In Daniel, he's the Ancient of Days. He's also the fourth guy hanging out in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband that marries the woman that continues to walk away and he remains faithful. In Joel, he's the one who pours out the Holy Spirit on his people. In Amos, he's our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. Jonah, the resurrection hope that doesn't run the other way. In Micah, he's the baby that is born in Bethlehem for the salvation of all people. In Nahum, the avenger of Lord, Elect In Habakkuk, he's the evangelist spreading God's good news. In Zephaniah, he is our savior. In Haggai, he's the restorer, a restorer of God's lost people. In Zechariah, he's the fountain that opens up to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness who brings hope and he brings life and healing to his people. Now... Amen. Jesus probably didn't go through all 39 books like that. But it would have been easy for him to do. It's not, it's not hard to find. It's not hard to find all of those truths in the Scriptures to see 39 books of the Old Covenant clearly pointing to Jesus. But then Jesus removes himself. Verse 50. And we'll end it here. I'll go ahead and ask the band to join us up here. In verse 50, Jesus leads them out as far as Bethany, which is a few miles out of Jerusalem he lifts up his hands and he proclaims a blessing over them. And while he blessed them, he started floating up into heaven. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, those same people that were sad, just 40 days before, on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus is gone. We don't know what to do. Those same people were watching him float up into heaven and say, we got it. We know what we're supposed to do. And they did wait. They waited 10 days after that before the Spirit fell at Pentecost. And then all of a sudden, things were moving. And the kingdom of God was spreading like wildfire. But those followers, they, they watched him float up with great joy. They returned to Jerusalem. And with great joy, They went to the temple to bless God because their eyes were opened, their hearts were burning, and they knew what they were now called to. So that's our calling. With eyes open, with hearts burning, we received the simple gospel that says Jesus was substituted on our behalf so that we might have life and righteousness from him. And now we follow him in burning-hearted pursuit, seeking to build his kingdom for his glory. So let's stand and sing. as Jesus was ascending into heaven he proclaimed a blessing over his people and he sent them out with joy and so it is my honor to proclaim a blessing over you and to send you out in joy knowing that with our hearts open and our hearts burning because of the finished work of Christ we are blessed we are blessed by God the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace Amen Go in peace.